I'm Beth Bennett. Today is Tuesday, February 13th. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Coming up, the scoop on plastics recycling, the good, the bad, and the ugly. From Marty Mach, Deputy Director of Boulder's EcoCycle, celebrating 50 years of saving recyclables from landfills. But first, a look at some of the recent news in science. We've talked a lot on this show about the gene editing system known as CRISPR. It has a wide variety of applications, ranging from medical miracles like curing sickle cell disease, to personalizing medical treatments, to enhancing agricultural crops. Because CRISPR is cheap and easy to use, scientists have long thought it would be possible to produce crops tailored to the needs of local farmers in low-income countries. This is finally becoming reality. Now, I know that when people hear about engineered food, we often turn off but let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. GMOs, as developed by chemical companies like Monsanto, pose a host of problems to the environment and human health. That's because these crops are designed to be used in conjunction with pesticides, which are also sold by the same company. The designer crops I'm talking about here are completely different, as you'll soon hear. One of these projects is a sorghum engineered to be resistant to a troublesome species of parasitic plant known as witchweed. Sorghum, not a household food in North America, is a hardy crop that's used widely in Africa for food, building materials, and feedstock. But more than 60% of African farmland is contaminated with species of witchweed, which can wipe out an entire crop. Some wild varieties of sorghum are resistant to the parasitic plant because they carry mutations that alter the crop's production of compounds that can cause the parasite seeds to germinate early, too early to survive, in fact. The CRISPR-edited variety of sorghum carries one of these mutations. Now, under Kenya's regulations governing gene-edited crops, such plants are treated like conventionally bred crops because they don't contain DNA from another species. In other words, the engineering simply takes a gene from one sorghum and moves it into another. This is exactly what we do when we make babies. Genes from each parent are moved to a new person. So, these gene-edited sorghum plants can bypass some of the heavy testing and requirements imposed on genetically modified crops that contain foreign DNA, that is, DNA from different species. Many other African countries have similar regulations. This modified sorghum variety is a significant step because witchweed is not a problem in wealthier regions, meaning that large multinational corporations have little incentive to develop solutions for it. Other gene editing projects are underway to improve African agricultural products. Researchers at the Kenya Agricultural and Livestock Research Organization in Nairobi have developed ways to edit maize, aka corn, to make it resistant to a lethal disease. They're also editing millet to make its flour less prone to becoming rancid after milling, and groundnuts to make them more resistant to infection by the fungus that produces cancer-causing aflatoxins. These are all local foods that are critical to African economies, and making them more resistant to diseases will make food more widely available, making African nations less dependent on foreign aid. African livestock are also being edited. 
One such project is modifying African breeds of cattle to improve their milk yields and tolerance to heat and disease. Although gene editing is relatively cheap to perform in the laboratory, it's not always easy to make the jump from the lab to the field. This is one bottleneck to putting these genetically modified crops and animals into widespread use. A second issue is the fact that poor small-scale farmers have limited purchasing power, so government involvement would probably be needed for the gene-edited products to reach them. But farmers in these African nations are more open to crops developed by local researchers than with seeds developed abroad. These projects were reviewed last month in the journal Nature. I don't care if it rains or freezes as long as I got my plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of my car. Comes in colors pink and pleasant, glows in the dark cause it's iridescent, shining down on me like a star. Get yourself a sweet Madonna. EcoCycle has been implementing and evolving a zero-waste model in Boulder County since 1976. As a result, the cities and towns across Boulder County have reduced the amount of material going to landfill, significantly below the state average of 16%. Recycling single-use disposable plastics is a major goal at EcoCycle. These plastics are derived from oil and natural gas and are significant contributors to climate change. As you'll hear in my conversation with Maddie Mache, they also pose a serious threat to both human health and the environment. Since the 1950s, global plastics production has surged from around 2 million tons annually to a staggering 440 million tons in 2015, with projections indicating that plastics production will nearly quadruple in the next 30 years. Maddie Mache is the deputy director of Boulder's EcoCycle. We spoke about the challenges of recycling plastics. You'll hear about the various types, why the plethora of shapes and varieties of plastic products pose a challenge to recycling, and the strategies employed at EcoCycle to keep them from the waste stream. Welcome to the show, Marty. I'm speaking with Marty Mesh, the Deputy Director of EcoCycle, our friendly local recycling center. So maybe we could start, Marty, by you just introducing people to what EcoCycle is. I'm, I'm betting that most of our listeners know, but for those that don't, Tell us a little bit about EcoCycle. Well, thanks for having me here. And I'd love to tell you, EcoCycle is one of the oldest and largest nonprofit recyclers in the country. So we pioneered recycling years ago, coming around to 50 years now, making Boulder one of the first communities in the country to have recycling services. And since then, we have been pushing the frontier of recycling and zero waste with uh, policy and programs and infrastructure that are designed to help Boulder County and beyond reduce their waste and also reduce our impact on the planet by uh, extracting less uh, natural resources, producing less pollution, having less of an impact on all species, human and otherwise. And we continue to work in Boulder County and Colorado and beyond to help move zero waste and circular economies forward. I love it that Boulder was in the forefront of recycling. That's that's just amazing to think that we've been doing it for almost 50 years. And, you know, as soon as you said that, I, I thought to myself, I remember the old yellow school bus that yes. came along and caked up and you had to separate everything. It's yes. Yes. So 
easier now. So That's right. In the old days, we, uh, the, we, I wasn't there, but it started in 1976. And in those days, they repurposed old school buses they had purchased from auction, gutted the school buses, and then went around to the communities where volunteers helped their neighbors know when and what and how to recycle and put their materials out at the curb. And you're right, there were many boxes and bags of all kinds of different materials as everything had to be what we call source separated. The right. residents had right. to keep everything separate, even the different colors of glass. And now we're so fortunate we can throw everything into the same big bins. But what about these plastics? Because we can't throw everything in. So this is going to be a deep dive into plastic. So yeah, just jump right. in and tell us and start with that darn symbol that is so misleading. Yes, the misleading recycling symbol. So the chasing arrows symbol that we're all familiar with will appear on almost all plastic containers and products and even toys. And it has a number on the inside. And a lot of consumers, if not most consumers, have been led to believe that if they see that recycling symbol on a product, that means that it goes in the recycling bin. Why wouldn't you think that? But that is actually not the case. What you need to know for what does or does not go in the recycling bin when it comes to plastics is what do your local guidelines say and not what does the product say. And that's for a couple of reasons. One is that many, many types of plastics are not recyclable. Um, when challenged on the use of this chasing arrows symbol, the plastics industry will tell you that was never intended for the consumer's use. That's why it's on the bottom of the product. That's just an internal resin code labeling system. But you put it in the context of a recycling symbol, and that is definitely confusing for people who want to do the right thing and recycle. In fact, many types of plastics are not recyclable. So really, when you are trying to discern what goes in the recycling bin, think about not, not the numbers. Most recyclers across the country are not going by numbers for their guidelines. Instead, they are going by forms. So rather than detailing which types of numbers we will take, we say that we will take bottles, tubs, jugs, jars, and clamshells. And then if you look at our guidelines, there are also some rigid uh, plastics that we'll take as well, like the rigid six-pack holders that are now out there for things like, um, yeah, for, for six and 12 packs and four packs. So is that confusing? Yes. <laughs> would it be a lot easier if it would just be that if a material is recyclable, it had the recycling symbol on it? And if it wasn't that it didn't? Certainly. And that is something that the recycling industry and certainly EcoCycle have been pushing for quite some time. And there's headway being made about that. And we might see some label shifting uh, coming soon where it is not so deceptive. But we do consider it to be a degree of what we would call greenwashing, misleading labeling. Yeah, definitely. And now is the reason that you advise people to look at form because in order to construct a certain form, the producers have to use a certain type of plastic? Yes. So here's where plastics recycling gets even more complicated. I'll say that Plastics are by far, by far the most complicated material we recycle because aluminum is 
pretty much aluminum. Steel is steel. Paper, even though it comes in many different forms, can still go to a, a paper remanufacturer. But a plastic is different. As we've noted, there are seven, seven different resin codes. And then even with within those seven different resin codes, there are continued uh, variations within the code. So for example, uh, let's take a, a number one. A number one PET is going to be on the bottom of your pop bottle, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a number one. Okay, well, now I also have some uh, a uh, packaging that kind of looks like styrofoam that came with my TV, and that says PET with a one on it as well. So that can go in there as well, right? Wrong. The market that buys the PET bottles absolutely does not take all number one PET. They don't want that packaging. And the reason is that within these seven codes, then manufacturers will also add colors and uh, other chemicals and additives that will further create uh, different chemical and physical properties within that product they're manufacturing. But all those additives even though it started with the same resin, it now makes those different resins incompatible. I see. And it might even make that, and that each resin isn't, they're not compatible with each other. So a market that buys number one is not going to be buying a number two HDPE or a three or a four or five or six or seven, uh, because those different resins have different properties and different melting temperatures. So they won't behave the same way in the remanufacturing process. So they really want a very specific resin. And even within that, uh, especially with things like PET, they want a very specific form. So yes, that's why we go by form instead of numbers. I see. And, and so let's, um, let's define that term resin. When you say that and you say there's different resins and that's what determines the number, that is simply the long chain, that's the long polymer or the long string of hydrocarbons that are mostly, I'm guessing, made from fossil fuels, but maybe not always. They are. They're, they're made from fossil fuels uh, generally, not always. You will find that there are plant-based polymers and, and those will have a number seven on the bottom. Now that will say number seven PLA uh, when it is a plant-based uh, polymer, but you'll find a number seven for polycarbonate as well. So that's another indicator why you cannot go by the number. Um, when they are plant-based, they are intended to be co composted, not recycled. Right. So when it comes to the recycling industry, they only want to purchase the fossil fuel-based polymers, not plant-based polymers. Right. So when we throw our stuff out to the curb, we can mix, you know, the bottles and the tubs and the guess, jugs and jars yeah, yeah. and clamshells. Those, those are different forms. So what, what happens when they get to EcoCycle? Because do you have to sort them in yes. order to sell them? That is correct. Absolutely. So what happens when you go to the Boulder County Recycling Center, which is operated by EcoCycle, 
you will and you can go and see it. We are happy to give tours. There's also on Tuesdays, you can go for a self-guided tour as it is an open building on, on those days as it's a publicly owned facility. It's your facility. If you live in Boulder County, you paid for it. And uh, you will see in action that materials will start, uh, they'll progress basically from the east side of the building um, to the west side of the building. And they'll start all combined in single stream and uh, coming from residential recyclers as well as commercial recyclers. And then they'll go through a very complicated mousetrap of conveyor belts and uh, automatic sorting equipment, as well as human sorters who will uh, have two goals. One is to start to separate all the different materials from each other and ultimately um, all the plastics even from their different types. And then we'll be bailing those materials and sending them off to their very different markets. So they'll, they'll go in all kinds of different directions. Once we get to the plastics side of uh, separation. So the, the paper is all going to be separated first. That brings us down to containers and magnets will help remove things like steel cans and eddy currents will remove aluminum cans. When it gets to having to separate the different plastics from each other, there are optical sorters on the line that are uh, setting out a laser that will hit on the plastics as they go below. And in a flash, they'll identify what the resin type it, uh, is and when it's the one it's sorting for. So there's one optical sorter just for a number one. There's another for the number two plastics and another for a number five plastics. That optical sorter will identify it as a one. It'll trigger a little boost of uh, air that will push it, push that material off of the conveyor belt and throw it into a uh, tube that will dump it in the correct place. It's actually, it's pretty cool. And you can see it online too, if you want to watch that process. We have video of that happening at uh, ecocycle.org if you want to check it out. Oh, very cool. And I'll add a link to that to our okay. show notes so that people can actually see that. I haven't seen that. It, that is very cool sounding. I've always wondered about that. So yeah, yeah, that. yes. And actually before the optical sorters were installed, we weren't able to take that huge variety of plastics. Um, so because it was down to a human sorter to, as all this material is going by on a conveyor belt, it's up to a human to quickly identify which material is which and put it in the, the right uh, larger bin, but now optical sorters help make that happen. And that means we can take more materials and more types of materials. I did read that in some communities, a lot of the plastics just end up in landfills anyway. Can you address why that happens? Well, I can speak to what EcoCycle does. There have been issues, everyone has heard that uh, in 2018, China had a national sword, national sword policy that uh, prevents the import of, uh, of plastics and other recyclables into the country. And for many, China was a primary market. And that really threw a lot of recyclers, particularly on coasts, into a little bit of a challenging situation. Those of us who are more inland, uh, 
never we weren't using Chinese markets in the first place. So uh, it that didn't initially affect us. Um, and we EcoCycle, we're a nonprofit organization. So and we only handle recyclables. We don't handle garbage. So whenever there is material that has to be landfilled, we are going to pay the the price for that landfill. We are going to lose money doing that. And so we have a very large incentive to make sure that the guidelines that we share with the community are what is actually recyclable. There's really a market that will take it and recycle it. And we really ask the community to follow those guidelines carefully, because if you give us something that isn't on the guidelines, uh, for example, plastic bags. If you put plastic bags into your curbside bin, that's going to go to the landfill if it comes to us with the single stream because it is not recyclable in that context. So we work very hard to make sure that everything that comes into the building is something we actually can market and reprocess. There is a real growing effort nationally to make sure that we have uh that there are growing markets for for plastics and then when plastics and other materials but when plastics are not recyclable that there's pressure on that manufacturer to stop using non-recyclable plastics and there certainly are a lot of what we would call junk plastics out there that um we we can't recycle and therefore really want to eliminate from the stream and eliminate from production in the first place um, are more toxic than others. And those are the first on the list that we want to see eliminated. And what are those? What are the toxic? Are they resins or are they different subtypes? They are generally resin types that are more toxic than others are uh, anything with a three, a six, or a seven on it when it, it's accompanied with the number with the letters PC polycarbonate. So three, six, and number seven PC are not easily they are the markets for those materials for recycling are are slim to none. They're very, very, very challenging to recycle. And they are a lot more toxic to manufacture and even for you as a consumer. So, for example, uh, number six is styrene, and in a foam form, it's polystyrene. So when you think of foam uh, to-go containers and foam coffee cups, that is a number six polystyrene. And we want to see that ma the material is not recyclable. We want to see it eliminated from manufacturing in the first place. And here in the state of Colorado, just a few days ago, the uh, Plastic Pollution Reduction Act went into full effect beginning January 1st, 2024. And that is a ban on the use of polystyrene uh, to-go containers and cups for restaurants. So as a customer, when you go to a restaurant, you should no longer be receiving polystyrene foam. And it's, again, it's not just for recycling reasons. It's also for health reasons and uh, uh, pollution reasons. You will see that some restaurants will still be distributing it because they're allowed to use up their inventory that they may have purchased in 2024. But once that inventory is gone, they need to switch to more recyclable and healthier, healthier alternatives or ideally reuse alternatives. Right. And, and that ties into my last question, which is 
what should people do? What should we as consumers do? So it sounds like we should actively try to avoid those three, six, and seven types. And I would say avoid three, six, seven, and also uh, black plastics, oh, if you okay. can. Black plastics are challenging. They aren't all uh, across the board uh, as toxic, but um, black plastics are often coming from recycled electronics. And so they've been treated with brominated flame retardants and then remanufactured. So in general, I would encourage the <laughs> avoidance of black plastics, everything from uh, black plastic utensils or, or cooking utensils to to-go containers. Um, but yes, then additionally, avoid number three, number six, and number seven plastics. Most uh, applications of those plastics are for other things. Um, but when it comes to food packaging, I would check the label and make sure that you are, for food and beverages, uh, avoiding three, six, and sevens. And then additionally, I would say, uh, please follow the guidelines. The guidelines are real. Um, what you see on recycling guidelines and certainly on what EcoCycle and Boulder County distribute, that's a list of the materials for which there is a viable market where a company is going to buy those products and turn them into something new. And so we've been very specific about what materials can go in the bin. And we ask people uh, not to what we call wish cycle. Often people will think <laughs> cycle will figure out what to do with this. I hate to throw it away. But know that if you give us something that isn't on the recycling guidelines, we didn't find a magical way to uh, repurpose it. It is something that ended up being probably pulled by uh, hand and then by an employee. And then it did have to go to the landfill at a cost to our nonprofit organization and program. Well, this is all such really good, useful information. Thank you so much for talking today, Marty. I am so delighted. Thank you for chatting with me. That was Maddie Mage, Deputy Director of Boulder's EcoCycle. We spoke about the challenges of recycling plastics. As consumers, it's vital to be aware of these challenges and the limitations they impose on the types of plastic we can toss in the barrel for pickup. I'll provide a link to the EcoCycle website and their guide to plastics recycling in the show notes on the How on Earth website. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Joel Parker is our executive producer, and I produce this week's show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Jorma Kalkonen. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, links to material referenced in the show. And you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.